0: Welcome to this episode of the Atlanta Career Journey podcast. Today's guest is Tom Fucci, who is the division captain at Palm Beach County Fire Rescue. Tom and I have known each other for most of our lives since growing up in Fort Lauderdale, and we've kept up with each other via social media over the years. I've been fascinated to follow his career journey through law enforcement and fire rescue. Tom has insight into a world that few of us really know or understand, and I'm so happy he agreed to be a guest today. So welcome to the podcast, Tom.
1: Hey, thanks, Paul. I appreciate you having me this morning.
0: Yeah, I did want to say you're one of my oldest friends because it makes us sound like we're eighty. But uh, yeah, I think I met you. Um, God, well, we're not going to go into dates, but yeah, certainly most of our lives, right? <laughs> We've known each other a very, very long time. Let's it, it, say it yes. Yep. Yeah, running around uh, out in the sun in the you know South Florida and fishing and bike riding and doing all kinds of crazy stuff with sports so yeah it's been uh, it's been great to reconnect with you and and uh you know kind of hear what you're doing over the years yeah so. very much
1: very much so and I, I enjoyed uh, uh, we grew up in a different time in a different period and a different generation uh and it just uh in looking back it's it's some cherished memories
0: for sure yeah i remember it wasn't like uh you know where are you and every point in time it's like just be home by dark right or with dinners at six o'clock I remember your mom used to come outside and whistle and that was the cue to go back home and uh, you know um, day was over right we had uh, the street light out in front of our house when I was kid, and my mom would say
1: when the street light comes on your butt better be inside and if it's not (laughs) get locked out (laughs) that's right I remember that Uh, yeah uh, and and there were a couple of times when she actually did that. I ran to the neighbor's house because I got locked out. And uh, my neighbor said to me, well, what did your mom say? And I said, well, she told me to come in when the streetlight was on. She goes, well, you didn't do that, did you? And I said, no. <laughs> and she said, well, this is what you get. <laughs> a lesson than-
0: for sure. Yeah, you probably didn't do that too many more times. I remember your mom was, uh, she was by the books. Yeah, there was some rules and you don't break them.
1: Oh yeah, she was, she was. She was the uh, the master of uh, of rules and uh, yeah. kept us kept us straight.
0: That's awesome. So yeah, I wanted to kind of just start with your background. Um, obviously, you were born and raised in Fort Lauderdale. Tell me a little bit about um, you know what you uh, what you liked growing into um, high school. You know subjects, things like that. Tell me a little bit about your background.
1: Sure. Um, yeah, I'm I'm one of very few people that's born and raised in Florida, and I'm still here. Um, which is unusual because when, uh, when so many people are transplanted from other places and you tell them that you're, uh, you're a uh, natural-born person here in Florida, they kind of look at you uh, strange. But I grew up in, uh, in a small little town uh, outside of, uh, of Fort Lauderdale called Lauderdale Lakes. And um, my parents uh, bought a house in this development And it was like one of those cookie cutter type developments where all the houses pretty much looked the same Mm -hmm. back then. It was, uh, I think the only color that people knew was white because I remember all the houses were white sidewalks were white and, uh, everything was pretty much just, I mean, without any color or anything. So, um, I, uh, I grew up there and went to school at, um, at uh, the local elementary school and the local middle school. And then uh, once I got to the high school level, um, I really didn't know where I wanted to go or what I wanted to do. And the local high school was going through some transition. And so um, there were times that there was some little unrest at the high school. And, mm-hmm. and this is back in the time when, when, when things were different. And I ended up uh, going to a uh, private school called Westminster Academy in Fort Lauderdale. And it's a parochial school um, connected to the Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. And that's where I ended up graduating from. Um, And I went there for two years. Uh, I learned a lot. I loved my teachers, Uh, a lot of the students. In fact, my graduating class was probably very, very small compared to a a lot of places. We Mm -hmm. had uh, 62 in our graduating class. Wow. And I believe I was like 61 out of the 62. Um, I really didn't take uh, grades or or school um, real serious. I I was involved in a lot of sports and I did a lot of extracurricular activities. Uh, Newspaper, you know, I worked on the high school newspaper and did a lot of things. I had a part-time job at the time. And uh, so I really didn't. Uh, take schooling or education very serious. In hindsight, I wish I had taken it a little bit more serious um, and had uh, had pursued um, it a lot more aggressively than I did.
0: Mm-hmm. Were you, so in high school, were you thinking college was in your future or were you looking to kind of just start working immediately and were kind of thinking through some options? What did that look like?
1: Well, it, it's, it's kind of funny because uh, none of none of the people in my family, both on my mom's side and my dad's side, ever went to college. And so uh, I really never even considered going to college. One of the uh, biggest influences in my life growing up was my uncle, um, who was a Methodist minister. And he uh, cur- just currently retired from the ministry, um, and he resides in, uh, I believe it's a uh, somewhere up in, in North Georgia. Mm-hmm. And um, he was one of the biggest influences. And he told me, he said, you need to go to college. And I really didn't know where or what I wanted to do. And my parents told me that they would send me away to school and pay for my first semester if I wanted to. And I ended up in a, in LaGrange, Georgia, as a matter of fact, and went to LaGrange College for uh, for three years. And uh, began my uh, career uh, as a police officer working in in Lagrange, georgia. it was uh, it was a very unique experience, I can say.
0: Yeah, so when you started at Lagrange, what was what were the studies that you were you're thinking about? Did you major in something specific or was it general studies?
1: i was uh, I started off, and again, you know my my attitude towards education from high school kind of carried over to college, and I really didn't take it real seriously. So I took a bunch of gen- general education classes and, uh, and then found one class uh, that I thought was interesting. It was a it was a intro to sociology and uh, it was being taught by the local police chief hmm. and um, one of the uh, requirements was you had to ride with the police department for four hours with the, one of the police officers to kind of see what they went through and uh, so I made arrangements to do that and I got to tell you that that pretty much changed my life. Um, I uh, had no idea what police officers went through. I had no idea what they uh, what they dealt with Um, and the four hours that I spent with them turned into eight hours and then before I knew it I was riding each and every weekend with the police department uh, with the officers um, riding alongside of them uh, seeing what they go through, uh, seeing what they're dealing, what they deal with, and it really, um, it really got 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 to me, and it was something that I, that I began to have a passion for, and I really wanted to do do that.
0: That's interesting. Was it so? Those ride-alongs that you um, evolved into was that now kind of outside the scope of? college studies or was it part of that or can anybody do those types of ride-alongs what's that look like yeah
1: um it was part of the studies um actually the uh, the instructor gave extra credit for uh for for riding along and then writing a, a paper uh, about your experience and because the police chief was the person who was teaching the class i had spoken to him after class one day and asked him if i could if i could ride on a regular basis and he said, "Well, you, well, we normally don't do that." And I said, "Well, I'm, I'm really, really interested." So he allowed me to sign a waiver um, that allowed me to ride each and every weekend if I wanted to, with no, um, no time limit. So hmm. basically, I could come in at seven o'clock in the morning and ride until seven o'clock at night, or if I wanted to come in at eleven o'clock at night, and I could ride till seven o'clock in the morning. And um, it, really, it really gave me uh, full access to the department. Uh, when I was getting ready to graduate from LaGrange, uh, they had a, um, an internship available at the local sheriff's office. And so I asked them if I could do the internship at the local police department at LaGrange PD rather than, than the sheriff's office, and they agreed. And so I did a, uh, a three-month internship with the LaGrange police department and their detective division and got to know everything, uh, their policies, their procedures, the way they, uh, they wrote up reports, the way they dealt with victims of crimes, uh, the way they investigated the crimes. Um, and it really gave me a, an insight to that. Uh, a lot of the departments had that available for anybody that wants to uh, participate. You can go to the police department and, um, and ask uh, for permission to ride. Uh, however, right now with the, the COVID issues, uh, I, I believe that's suspended in most departments. But once wow. uh, once we get past this uh, past this, I believe they will uh, they will allow anybody to do it. They also had an interesting program at Lagrange PD, something called the Citizen Police Academy, and basically what it was, it was about a ten week program. And each week you would meet for one night a week and um, you would learn different aspects of a police department and law enforcement. And they would bring somebody in. And so one week you learned how to fingerprint. And one week you learned what they do uh, for an arrest. One week you learn um, how they interview. And one week it was the breathalyzer. And one week it was um, somebody doing a lie detector. So each week you got to see a little bit more of the police department, and they allow people to ride. You got to go out to the firearms range and and shoot a little bit, and and they just they really opened it opened up the uh, the department to the citizens so that they get a chance to see what goes on behind the scenes.
0: Interesting, yeah. It's, I had no idea that that's you know was an opportunity you know for those you know internships and those ride- alongs that's pretty fascinating so it really kind of sparked an interest in your your uh, future in law enforcement huh? yeah
1: yeah it, uh, it it was the catalyst that that pushed me in that direction. Um, unfortunately going to uh, school out of state is is, is quite expensive and mm-hmm. so uh, I uh, was looking for alternate means of, of, of raising uh, money to uh, to go to college and so uh, the police department local police department, had a program where if you came to work for them and you worked for them for um, up to a year, they would pay for your college classes. So uh, that led me to, uh, to apply with the uh, LaGrange Police Department. And I was hired in, uh, in, the, in June of, I think I guess it was 86, when I, uh, when I started with, the, with them. And uh, what's unique is, is in Georgia, you can actually uh, become a police officer um before going to the police academy and uh they have a waiver and uh, so you learn all the, the policies and procedures and everything like that and then um and then you go to the police academy um up to six months after you've been hired and you learn the statutes and policies and procedures of, of, of processing arrests and how to do traffic stops and um how to shoot a firearm and, and all kinds of different things and I stayed with LaGrange PD until uh, I, I believe it was the early part of 1989 when I decided that I missed my family and I wanted to move back to Florida. Hmm.
0: So you had graduated from LaGrange College and uh, you were working full time with the police academy before you moved back to Florida? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Okay. I, uh, gotcha. I uh, it was a. Uh, it was a time when when a lot of things were going on uh, back home, and I needed I needed to be closer to my family, mm-hmm. and um, and I missed them. You know, being yeah. so far away, uh, it, it's it's kind of tough. So um, I made the made the decision, and it was tough to leave because I had made made a life for myself up there, um, yeah. with friends and and people that I was close with, and and so. But it was uh, it was something that I needed to do. When I came back to Florida, um, the first step I took was I had to get certified as a law enforcement officer in Florida, and so I took a a local course at a local college. Um, I believe at the time it was Broward Community College. I think it's Broward College now, Hmm. Um, and uh, once you uh, completed the course and you took the state exam, you could be certified, so... My uh, One of my first jobs working in Florida when I moved back was I worked for the uh, Miccosukee Tribe of Indians down in Miami, Florida um, for their police department. And I was there for about eight years um, working for them, which was uh, unique in and in of itself um, because the culture is different. The people are different. Um, It was uh, it was something new to me. And I was intrigued by by what um, what I didn't know.
0: Mm-hmm. What were some of the, the, uh, I guess the things that surprised you or things that you were, um, you know, you took the most out of that experience. Cause that you're right. I mean, being on an Indian reservation or understanding their traditions and their policies is very different than what we typically experience as, um, you know, Americans, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the way that they, uh, the way they conduct themselves and they're, like you said, the traditions, um, they, they go through some stuff. Um, they deal with, they deal with, uh, their members differently than, than we do in the, in the general, uh, population, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, when somebody does something wrong on an Indian reservation. Uh, they get in touch with their uncle. Who's the, um, overseer of, uh, of discipline and, they're they they're very uh, matriarchal. The mother uh, holds a very, very high role in their uh, in their culture. And so uh, when the mother says something, you pretty much better follow it, which was familiar to me because that's how I grew up. You know, when my mm. mom said something, you followed it. Yeah. And so, uh, theirs was very similar to that. Um, they didn't believe in um, in regular laws and statutes that we have on the books. Uh, mm-hmm. Theirs was m- more personal. Um, they dealt with it one on one. If you did something wrong, um, they assigned responsibility. They, resi- they assigned punishment fitting the crime. Um, if it was something more serious, then uh, they usually allowed us to to, to take control of it. But, uh, for the most part, uh, they oversaw things. They, uh, they pretty much managed and, and, and over, uh, had authority over themselves, which was kind of nice because it really left us, uh, with a lot of time on our hands. Um, we weren't busy doing a lot of, a lot of that type of stuff because they dealt with it themselves. Uh, Mm -hmm. they have a tribal court system, uh, with tribal judges and they have a, um uh, a jail uh if you will or a, a prison if you will um that you know they put people in they you know hand out judgments and and do pretty much everything internally you don't hear a whole lot in the uh, in the national media um about what transpires or what happens on an in- on the indian reservations
0: it's interesting because I, um, and I know I, I said, you know, Americans that were different than Indians and we were all Americans, but um, just wanted to, I'm trying to figure out the, the right nomenclature to say, you know, on, on reservation versus off. And it, you coming in as a, as a law enforcement officer, do, do say state of Florida laws apply within that jurisdiction of the reservation or does tribal policy take over um, at the, you know, kind of the, the boundaries of that reservation? How does that work?
1: Yeah, it's it's a little confusing, and, and that was the hardest part in teaching new officers that started is uh, where the jurisdictional boundaries fall. Uh, down in Miccosukee, uh, their reservation actually sits on a portion of the uh, U.S. Park Service. So uh, it's within the National Park, uh, which is uh, Everglades National Park. And so uh, that portion of their housing, uh, which was resided on that, was all federal jurisdiction. So state law had no, no jurisdiction. Um, Hmm. you, uh, you, you couldn't enforce state laws on there. The only thing you could enforce was either tribal law or federal law. There was another portion of the, uh, of the reservation that was strictly in state jurisdiction. And so federal law didn't really apply and state and tribal law applied. So knowing where, uh, where the crime occurred or what, um, what occurred and where uh really led you to to enforce it in different different avenues mm-hmm. um we saw uh we saw a bunch of uh people that we had to explain it to uh for instance we had a uh, we had a gentleman who came out to repossess a car on the reservation and we had to inform him that he didn't have a legal right to repossess the car because of where the car was located it was on federal in strictly federal land And uh, he would have had a got gotten a federal uh, court order in order to repossess the car. And he said, well, I have a a state court, you know, allowing me to do it. And I said, it doesn't apply because of the location. So um, it really knowing the where the lines were drawn, um, it was uh, it was a hard time to try and explain that to people because a lot of people didn't understand it. And I told him, I said, look. Um, when you pass that line that says you're entering the Indian reservation, it's a different world. It's it's you know you're the way you do things in in the regular world um, don't exist on the Indian reservation. the the same laws don't exist. Um, the same way that we enforce the laws is is totally different. So um, that was a that was a challenge in and of itself.
0: Yeah. It's almost like going to a different country where you've got local laws that apply depending on where you are physically right
1: exactly it's like um going into a uh an embassy and when you step foot in, <coughs> into that embassy you're under their laws they're you're under their control and uh and it's just, and it's no different than when you cross that Indian reservation line you're going into a different different country if you will. yeah
0: that's a better way to describe it yeah.
1: It because it it really is um your uh, the the laws and the customs that you're uh, used to um, don't exist yeah uh, some may may transfer over but for the most part it's it's completely different but so
0: you were there that's amazing it's just fascinating I know you've got probably stories you could tell for the next two hours oh. but <laughs> so trust,
1: trust me I could because I, <laughs> I learned so much and and believe it or not I still to this day and now that's been probably 20 years ago 25 mm. years ago i still have friends that um that work down there that mm-hmm. live on the reservation that i still communicate with i still talk to um and and uh, you know even though I'm, I'm not there any longer um there there's some some lifelong friendships that you make yeah uh, because it's a in and, and relative to today it's an understanding of, of, of somebody else's different culture, the different way that they uh, grew up or their lives or their socioeconomic abilities. Um, You have to understand that you're the visitor in all this and not, you're not, you're not a, a tribal member. So you're learning their customs, their laws, their everything that they do that they've grown up with. And you have to be respectful of that.
0: How did they train you for that? Was it just sort of like you, you learn as you go, or was there some sort of, for you coming in as a law enforcement officer, how did they onboard you to what the traditions and the, the rules and, you know, how things are conducted there on the reservation?
1: Well, they, they, they have elders um, that take different roles and in the, uh, in the in their framework, they have a uh, person that's in charge, and, and he's he's called the chairman um, rather than the president. He's elected every four years, and then they have a tribal council, and the tribal council is is just like our Congress, um, where they make rules and laws and 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 oversee uh, business aspects and uh, um, and the tribal business, and then they have elders that that hold special roles. And, uh, they do have what's called a medicine man, um, who treats ailments. And, and if there's certain things that need to be uh, done, they usually fall on, on their shoulders. Um, but, but the elders take a, a, a special interest to the people that are coming on there and they teach you some of the, the customs. They teach you some of the things that they do and they're more like advisors so uh, I, I kind of related, related to them as, as tribal advisor. Uh, if you had a question that came up and you needed to seek some advice, that was the person you, you went to. And, and uh, for instance, I had a, uh, I had a kid. He um, was a young, younger kid, um, probably 18, 19 years old, and um, had been uh, drinking very heavily one night and got into, uh, got into a fight uh, with his, I believe it was his girlfriend at the time. Um, and so we got called to it and we separated them. And uh, I really didn't know what action I was going to take. So I called up the uh, tribal advisor and I spoke to him and he said he would come out to the scene. And he spoke to the young man and he spoke to his girlfriend. And once he did that, he came back to me and he says, It's been handled. And I said, Okay. <laughs> And he's like, "Don't worry about it. I'll get in touch with uh, with the young man's mother, and it'll be taken care of. And they'll make they'll make it they'll make it right." Hmm. I said, "Okay." And that's how it was handled, and it was taken care of. And that's how they usually handle things. Yeah, Uh, they they want to do it internally. They don't want other people getting involved. And so uh, it's 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 unique. It's different. Uh, Yeah. You know, you go to a domestic and, you know, you separate the parties and you find out who the aggressor is and you put the handcuffs on them and you take them to jail. And that's pretty much the way it works Yeah. in their area. That's that's not not so. So, yeah, I could tell you a bunch of different stories.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's you know, it is fascinating because you've got sort of that um, that structure almost, I don't want to call it a governing structure, because it's not really, you know, government, but that guidance, like you said, it's sort of built into their culture, and they can, they can help sort of alleviate certain conflicts, or there's some influence that allows them to, you know, instead of this, you know, handcuffs, going to jail, trial, and whatever, you know, there's other ways, it's almost like, you know, when you and I were kids and, you know, if we got into trouble, you know, mom, dad came over instead of calling the police. It was, hey, mm-hmm. you know, come get your son. They're, you know, chasing ducks into the street or whatever. Yep. And, uh, you know, the parents dealt with it and we weren't doing that again, you know, so. Um, right.
1: and, that, and that's that's the difference, a, a major difference between the Native Americans and, and, and I guess, you know, non-Native Americans is the way they deal with things. Uh, it's more personal. Um, I like to call it alternative sentencing because it's not like you just go to jail and you wait out your sentence. Uh, They find unique ways. I mean, a couple of days after this incident, the young man was on the side of the road and he was uh, he was tilling a garden, you know, with a with a uh, tiller. And I found out later on that that was part of his punishment for 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 doing that. And then he had to uh, bring the uh, vegetables and, and fruits and stuff like that, that he had grown in the, in the garden, he had to bring it to um, his girlfriend's parents because he had to make amends with, with the parents. And mm. that's how they dealt with things. Um, yeah. And that was very similar uh, for a lot of, a lot of the different issues that we yeah. dealt with.
0: Something he said for that, isn't yeah. it? Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's uh and, and it exists in today's, uh today's world. And if, you didn't know it existed, you would probably never, never encounter it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I didn't know that there were several Indian tribes in Florida and one of them being Miccosukee. And then their cousins are the Seminole uh, tribe, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a, which is a much larger uh, tribe of native Americans that, that reside in Florida. And they have several uh, reservations located throughout the state of Florida, Mm -hmm. Uh, and you learn a little bit of the history of, uh, of of and and the plight of what they went through and stuff. So it gives you some understanding of why there are some some resentments in in some in some areas. Yeah. Um, and and you understand that. Not that I have any control over that because obviously some of it happened you know two hundred years ago. But you understand where they came from. You understand why they why they feel the way that they do. And you try and be sympathetic to some of their needs and, and, and some of their, their, their customs and the way that they do things. You have to, you have to appreciate that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think there's, there's a lot of that in society today where there's really not an understanding of where the, you know, the, the conflict or the anger is. I mean, you know, you mentioned with native Americans, there's certainly a lot happening with African Americans and, you know, we're trying to deal with that as a culture and it's, there's not an easy solution. And I think, you know, I, I know my kids are very progressive, um, and they are really um, more focused, I think, than say previous generations were on on a social conflict and trying to come up with solutions that really will help you know move us along as a country.
1: Yeah, I agree, and and you know, people need to, to understand that you know it takes two, and, you know, it can't all be one sided. It, it takes two people, and you have to uh, you have to be able to negotiate, and you have to be able to understand and. And have some uh, empathy for for other people, and you know, know what their plight is. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, obviously, I'm not you know African American, but I can I can sympathize with with some of the things that goes on with them. Seeing it from a, a law enforcement side, you know, there is some injustice, there is some uh, some racism that goes on, there is some uh, of of uh, bad things that that happen, and it's not just because. Somebody's, uh, you know, the color of their skin, but sometimes, you know, it's, it's what they say or what they do and not following directions. It's, uh, and police officers today need to, need to take that into account that there's always two sides. It's not always, you know, one person being bad or one person doing something that they shouldn't have done. You know, you doing something as a result of that doesn't make it right. And just because you wear a badge doesn't make it right. Yeah. you have to, uh, you have to take a you have to take an active stance and 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 call it for what it is and say if it's wrong, it's wrong. period. Um, I guess that's kind of the reason why I got into law enforcement was because I wanted to to do do things for other people um, and and to and to learn more about other people. Um, when I uh, left Miccosukee and and w- went to Seminole for a couple of years as police officer there, um, I started uh, learning, uh, how to deal with people, um, of a different culture of a different of race and, um, and, and learning how to be more, uh, more sympathetic, more empathetic to their needs and to their, their standings. Um, I was able to go back to school and finish my degree and I was looking for a job that actually, um, challenged me and, and not that police work is is not challenging because it is, and I enjoy it. Um, But I was looking for something. I've always been the kind of person that was good at puzzles and good at mysteries, good at figuring out, you know, uh, Colonel Mustard in the library with the candles. (laughs) You know, I always found that fascinating. And in police work, you know, I got to a point where I was just basically going to the calls and writing reports and, There was nothing challenging to it. There was, there was no uh, mystery about it. Mm -hmm. And pretty much anybody could put on a badge and a gun and, and, and go to a domestic and and do what they have to do. There's no, no science behind it. And um, I always was fascinated with fire. Even as a little kid, I like to burn stuff. Firefighters (laughs) we like to blow stuff up and we like to burn stuff. I mean, (laughs) that's, that's, that's the bottom line. I mean, and and uh, so as a as a kid um, growing up, I, I didn't play with fire. I didn't you know wasn't fascinated with it or anything, but um, I was intrigued by the the science behind it. And so uh, when I uh, got another degree at, at at Nova Southeastern University in Fort Lauderdale, um, I was actually seeking out a job where it used a lot of the knowledge that I already gained as well as some science and some challenging aspects to it. And uh, I was fortunate enough that uh, there was an ad for an investigator for Palm Beach County Fire Rescue um, placed in the local newspaper. My sister saw the ad and she knew that I was looking for something on a full-time basis that, you know, that really challenged me because I worked a couple of part-time jobs while I was in while I was in college, uh, getting my next degree and um, just couldn't find something that satisfied that need. And when this came up, I was like, you know what, this, this sounds interesting. It sounds right up my alley. And uh, I remember the first time that I applied for the position, um, they were looking for uh, someone with law enforcement experience, which was right up my alley.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And they were also looking for somebody with a fire background. And that wasn't up my alley. And so when I went to the interview. Um, They interviewed 10 candidates. And uh, at first, I was not selected. And I uh, received the letter. And and even though my hopes and dreams were a little bit dashed at the time, um, I felt that there was something out there that would draw me, that something would open up a door, a window, something would open up where I would be in a a position uh, that I wanted to be in, that I wanted to do, and that I could get a passion for.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, I was fortunate uh, that right after uh, right after they hired that one person uh, for Palm Beach County, uh, another investigator had resigned and was moving out of state. And so they had a second position open. And so I got a phone call one day and I still remember it to this day. It's It was, you know, 20 years ago, but I still remember it to this day. And they asked me if I was still interested in the position. And I said, hell yeah. I said, mm-hmm. when can I start? and they said yeah. well, we'll give you 2 weeks and i said can i start tomorrow i mean i'm ready <laughs> let's do this and, uh, so that's pretty much how it all kind of fell into place and i knew that you know uh, i knew that's that something the the stars aligned or somebody was pulling on strings or something happened that put me in where i needed to be yeah and, I, uh, I started with Palm Beach County Fire Rescue as an investigator. And, uh, and to believe it or not, Paul, I, I haven't really looked back. Um, it's been, uh, it's been my, my life's work for the last 20 years. Um, I love it. I wouldn't change a, a thing about it. Um, I love where I work. I love the people that I work with. Uh, it's a great, great department. Um, we're one of the largest departments in South Florida, uh with over 49 fire stations we've got uh close to 600 uh I'm sorry 1600 personnel um and um we're the largest geographic county uh, east of the Mississippi uh we have uh we cover an area of 1800 square miles and it's uh it's 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 a challenge um it's a challenge not only for uh, for the job, but it's a challenge for me, and I love that challenge.
0: Um, yeah, it's uh, that's it's amazing.
1: Been, yeah, it's been eye opening. Yeah.
0: yeah, it's because um, there's there's so much to kind of unpack with what you just said. And um, how did you, moving from law enforcement and even being turned down the first time, when that second opportunity opened up, how did you then start to train and gain the experience? And you know, with with fire and um, you know all the things that go into making a fire Mm -hmm. fire inspector and rescue and all those, those things. How did you, do they, they run you through training through that or is it again on the job? Do you shadow people?
1: Well, it was, it was funny because the the job posting said they were looking for somebody with law enforcement experience. And and so I fulfilled that. Mm -hmm. And when I went to the interview, they asked me specific questions about the fire code, which I, I couldn't answer. And I really didn't know. And so when I left, when I left the interview, um, I went and, and researched it online to, to find out what they were talking about. And one of, the, one of the documents that they asked me about was something called NFPA 921. Well, I later found out that NFPA stands for National Fire Protection Association, and that 921 was the, uh, the document or the book that teaches how to do fire and explosion investigations. And I had never come across the book. I never knew it even existed. And so I started researching it and I started reading. And the more I read, the more I found that I was drawn to it and found that there were things that I I had no idea that that even existed, Um, that there is a science behind starting a fire, that it's not just flicking a bick. And having a flame come out, that there's there's a science behind it, that mm-hmm. it requires certain things uh, in order for it to occur, and that by doing other things or taking things away, the fire would go out. Uh, for instance, uh, a fire needs several uh, different elements in order for it to occur. You need uh, you need a heat source. You need a fuel, uh, and I'm when I say fuel, I'm not just talking about like gasoline or or oil or or any of those things. Fuel could be anything, could be a chair, could be a table, a desk. Uh, it's a it's a fuel that burns, mm-hmm. and it needs oxygen, and it needs uh it needs you know it has plenty of oxygen in our air, but it needs oxygen in order to survive. And if you take away the oxygen, uh, the fire goes out. If you take away the the heat, the fire goes out. If you Take away the fuel, the f- fire goes out. And the fourth element that's needed is a uh, is a chemical chain reaction inside uh, what's burning. And the items that are burning uh, actually start to give off uh, flammable vapors, and those vapors are what burn. And as those uh, as those vapors continue to burn, the item, whatever it may be, uh, starts to decay and changes its chemical composition. And so uh, once I started learning that, I was like, wow, I'm onto something here. This is this is fascinating. And, you know, you, you, you see the, the fire trucks carrying water. So you're like, OK, they carry water and, you know, water puts fire out. Well, the science behind it is, is the water actually takes the heat away mm-hmm. and it takes the um, takes the oxygen away by by uh, smothering it. So it, it really performs two functions at the same time. Yeah. Uh, and like I said, the more I got into it, the more I learned, um, a lot of it when I first started with them was on the job training. Uh, I was fortunate to have a, a mentor, um, that was with the department for over 30 years. He was the, uh, the chief investigator of the department and he had been a fire marshal at a local municipality and he took me under his wing and he pretty much showed me everything there is to know uh, everything I know about fire. Um, mm-hmm. we went to, uh, we went to a bunch of fire scenes and I always asked him questions and, and I've, I've always done that. I've always been a question asker and, um, trying to learn as much as I possibly can. And I remember saying to him, treat me like a sponge, you know, teach me what you are seeing. And I want to see it. I want to know it. I want to understand it. And so I remember, uh, being there for about six months and, uh, you know, it just wasn't making any sense. And I said to one of my fellow investigators, I said, am I ever going to get this? I've been doing this for six months and I don't see what you're seeing. I don't see the patterns. I don't see the the damage. I don't see, you know, or understand what I'm looking at. And his advice to me was just give it time. He goes, you're going to be at a fire scene one day. And all of a sudden that light bulb's going to go off and you're going to say, shazam, I see it and it's going to be evident to you it's going to be like staring you in the face yeah and i said okay and exactly how he described it is exactly how it happened
0: um, i was yeah walk, up, me, walk me through it yeah
1: and the light went off and the thing with fire investigators our our our, our tool that we use is uh, is the fire patterns uh in and, and it's a different skill set for the fire investigator than it is for a firefighter. Firefighters are trained uh, to go into a location. They look for victims. They try and extricate the victims and they're looking to put the wet stuff on the red stuff, you know, uh-huh. uh, trying they just <laughs> want to put the fire out. And so, uh, you know, they're not looking at evidence. They're not looking at burn patterns. They're not looking at damage. They're not looking at any of that stuff. Well, as a fire investigator, that's what we do. We go in after the fact, after the fire has been extinguished, and our job is to determine where the fire started and why it started and, and, and what caused it to start, and then assign a responsibility. Was it a product that failed? Was it operator error? Was it something that somebody did intentionally um, because somebody made them mad? Is it something somebody tried? trying to gain uh like favor with somebody were they doing it for, for a profit you know th- all these things are what the fire investigator has to determine and so um the challenging part is going into these fire scenes after the fire department and firefighters have, have gone in and put the fire out and now trying to reconstruct things back the way they were beforehand mm-hmm. and so burn patterns we use uh, degrees of damage we use all these different uh, techniques in order to determine where the fire started. It's called the origin, the origin of the fire. And then once you've established the origin, then you're able to find the cause. Now, here's the, the funny thing, Paul, was that when I started out in law enforcement, I never knew this job existed. I had no idea that there were fire investigators in this world. And currently, yeah. I'm, a, uh, I'm a member of a very small, unique group. There's only about 5,000 or so certified fire investigators in the world. And I happen to be one of them, um, which is is pretty neat. But I wish somebody had said to me, hey, you know what? You need to be a fire investigator because I would have jumped on it leaving high school. I would have been the first one in line because it is the coolest thing that I've ever been involved in. And there are people in the public sector, which is uh, fire investigators that work for cities and counties and governments and, you know, ATF and, you know, state fire marshal's office and local fire departments. And then you have, uh, private fire investigators that work for insurance companies. They work for attorneys, they work for, um, uh, manufacturers of, uh, you know, uh, consumer products. Uh, they're, they're, they're all over the place. And I never knew that the job existed and, hmm. and kind of like the hidden gem amongst uh, employment and our employers.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, with only 5,000 worldwide, um, it certainly isn't a big footprint for people to realize what that is. And to your, to your point, I never really thought, I just figured when the fire trucks show up and they are putting out a fire, you know, there's probably one guy at on the side going, Oh, okay. It looks like they had an electrical fire. that started in their basement or somebody was doing mm-hmm. some new construction. And by the time they leave the scene, they already know, everything about the fire, what caused it, which, you know, is certainly not the case. And there's a lot more you just described that goes into why did the fire start? And all these questions around the investigation, you know, intent um, environment, you know, all the other things it's, yeah, it's pretty fascinating just to know that all that really exists behind the scene.
1: Yeah, it it really does. And, and, you know, a lot of people don't, I mean, people have a fire and, and usually people have one fire in their lifetime. I mean, you know, some unfortunate people have a couple more, but it's it's very unusual for anybody to have a number of fires in, in in their whole lifetime, and so you know they're going through the most traumatic experience that that they know of, and it's actually been been studied to find that uh, having a fire is equal to getting a divorce or losing your job or uh, one of the other major life events, and because you know, pretty much everything burns up in a fire. And that's Mm -hmm. what challenging and hard as an investigator is to do the investigation, because you're looking at a bunch of burned stuff. Um, I can tell you, I looked at at products, uh, blenders and coffee makers and, and, uh, and stovetops and, and all kinds of different consumer products. And you're looking at it, trying to figure out what it was before it got burned up. And so you're, you're, you're matching that up and then you're trying to understand what the fire did. So you have to, you have to look at it in terms of the fire burned in a certain location for a certain amount of time. And was the product that was sitting there, was it a result of, of it or or was it the cause of it? So you're looking for the cause and effect. And uh, a lot of times you're, you're using your other senses to kind of put that all together. Um, It's a, it's it's one of the most challenging jobs, but the most rewarding because when you go to, you know, the homeowner and they're sitting there and they're looking at their burned uh, burned possessions, and you say to them, you know what, your fire started in that bedroom and it was a result of the extension cord that you had running right there, and then they look at you and go, well, how could the extension cord started? Well. Unfortunately, you had an extension cord plugged into an extension cord plugged into another extension cord that was plugged into the wall and you had eight items plugged into the extension cord and it just overloaded and electricity just can't handle that type of load. And so you explain that to them in ways that they understand it, but you're there also to help them through it because there's a lot of questions that come afterwards you know they're calling their insurance company and they're calling their adjuster and they're calling the uh their neighbors and their friends and their family and they're trying to deal with with all the the destruction that, that has occurred and they'll sit there and and, and just look at you and go where, where do I go now you know what do I do now and so again when I first when we first started the podcast I was telling you that I got into the job to help people and you know what I do help people. I, yeah. am, I look at it this way. I impact somebody's life each and every day. Positively That's... or negatively, <laughs> I impact their lives each and every day.
0: Yeah, and that means something.
1: If I, make, if I can make their day a little bit better than it was yesterday, then I've done my job.
0: So what are, what would be some, um, uh, for lack of a better word, best practices that you could You could give uh people whether they're homeowners or they're living in apartments or you know if we're talking about residential you know fire prevention what are some things that um you could give people advice to say do this or don't do this
1: well the number one and i can tell you it saves lives number one top of the list have a smoke detector have a smoke alarm put a smoke alarm in your house have it working Uh, nowadays they're selling smoke alarms that have 10-year lithium batteries You can buy them off the shelf. You can buy them on Amazon. You can buy them at any big box uh, home retailer. Um, They're not that uh, expensive. They're, you know, 20, 30 bucks, but they last for 10 years. And when the battery dies, then you just throw it away. Uh, It's not like the old days where the smoke detector would chirp and beep. And then you got to put the battery in and put the Mm nine-volt battery in and look for a nine-volt battery and, you know, check your smoke detectors when you change your clocks. None of that, you know, the, the technology is caught up to where we're at uh, nowadays, but the number one thing is, is to have smoke detectors and smoke alarms. Uh, You should have a smoke alarm in each bedroom of your house and a smoke alarm in the general common area, living room, family room. Uh, You don't want to put one in the kitchen because if you cook in, like I cook, uh, when the smoke alarm will constantly go off because Mm -hmm. that's how I know when my food is done. So you don't want to put one in your kitchen, but you want one in each of the sleeping rooms and you want to have one in a general common area. And the smoke alarms, like I said, is the number one thing that saves lives, hands down. Yeah. Number two is, is you want to go around your house, and we all have them. In fact, you know where I'm sitting in my, in my home office right now, I'm looking at two of them, but surge protectors. We buy surge protectors. And the reason is is because they're comfortable. We, you know, have so many electrical devices now that need to need to run off of power that we buy these surge protectors. And the problem is is that the surge protectors are only rated for certain levels of amperage, and when you exceed that, you're putting you're, you're putting pressure on that device, and you're hoping that that device will continue to operate the way it was intended. Unfortunately, being human, we try and exceed those expectations. And we plug surge protectors into surge protectors into surge protectors.
0: Mm -hmm. And
1: when you question somebody, they're like, well, why did they give me eight slots? I should be able to fill out eight of them. (laughs)
0: And you're
1: like, yeah, they give you eight slots, but you're not supposed to technically fill out eight of them. And you can't plug one surge protector into another surge protector and get 16 outlets out of it. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't work that way. So look around your house. Make sure that if you are using a surge protector or an extension cord, make sure that it's free. Make sure that it's not bundled up. Make sure that the cord um, actually is extended or curled in a way that it's not wrapped around a table or or underneath a table leg or underneath a rug because you're defeating the purpose of the insulation that's on that power cord. Power cord, uh, the insulation dispels the amount of heat that's being generated along the cord and when you tie that up you pinch it in some way or you cover it with a rug you're asking for problems because the heat has no place to dissipate and the heat will continue to generate in that one specific area until you have a fire so look around your house make sure that if you are using extension cords you're not overloading it you're not putting, you know, 10 items into, a, into a, a $1 extension cord that you got at the dollar store. It's not, not going to help. It's not going to do what it needs to do. Um, number three is, uh, is, is to pay attention when, you're, when you are in the kitchen. The number one, and a lot of people don't know this, but the number one cause of fires today, number one in the nation is unattended cooking. People get distracted. People get you know, their lives are, are, are going around. You've got kids yelling and screaming. You've got the television on. You've got the phone ringing. Somebody comes to the door and knocks on the door and you've got a pan of oil because you're getting ready to cook those French fries and the oil starts to burn. And mm-hmm. next thing you know, your kitchen's on fire and you've burned down the kitchen cabinets. Yeah. So unattended cooking is the number one cause of fires today in America. And over sixty percent of the structure fires that come in in residences are as a result of unattended cooking. So if you're cooking, make sure that you're standing right by the right by the pan. Make sure that you're nearby and you can keep an eye on it. If uh, if if a tr- distraction comes up, turn the heat off or remove the pan from the heat source, um, and then and then do what you need to do and then come back. But Make, make sure that you're paying attention to the cooking and, and the things that you're doing. Um, yep. Those are the, those are the three biggest areas that we see the most number of fires as a result of.
0: Well, that's all really good advice. And I think, you know, we're all susceptible to doing probably every one of those that you've described. And I'm thinking places in my home, I'm like, yeah, I think that extension cords tucked under something that shouldn't be. So mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: They're, they're simple and they're easy, but we've overlooked them. Um, for so long and then when a fire breaks out you're looking at it and you're like I don't understand why the fire broke out well you know it, it could be that you had 20 things plugged into a surge protector and it just it doesn't it doesn't help Yeah. but you know you still have to show empathy towards that person you know because they just lost everything Yeah. And the funny thing about fire is Paul is that it's indiscriminate it doesn't it, it, it doesn't pick and choose it just burns and so sometimes when we go into a house, uh, I've had people ask me for items of sentimental value like photographs or you know they had a photo album of their kids growing up and that's stuff you just can't replace yeah and I've gone into places where there wasn't a roof on you know the walls were all burned down. All you're looking at is a concrete slab where the house used to be and you walk over to the bedroom and underneath the pile of rubble is the photo album because it survived. Because mm-hmm. just the way that it, the fire burned, it never came in contact with the photo album. And handing that to the, to the homeowner and seeing the look on their face um, is just, it's so rewarding. It's, it's, like, it's like winning the lottery because you've yeah. handed them something that they can't replace. And it's just, it means so much to them in order to yeah. be able to do.
0: That. Yeah, it's priceless. And yeah, so that's a one bright spot they could take from an otherwise really horrendous day.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and that's that's what my job is. My job is to transition them from being a victim uh, and, and suffering one of the worst things that happened in their lives into something better. Something that you know you can answer the questions, you can direct them in the in the in the area that they need to go. They can they can seek the assistance and start putting their lives back together again after something uh, as horrible as a fire occurs. Mm-hmm. being able to do that is, is, is something that, like I said, this is, this is my life's work and I love what I do. I'm very passionate about it.
0: Well, that's, that's incredible. I mean, I, I'm, I'm so happy that you found something that is a passion that's rewarding that you've done, you know, all the things that kind of combine your experiences and really helping people, um, you know, get through very difficult times in prevention and trying to get in front of those things instead of waiting for something bad to happen. So, Mm-hmm. Thanks so much, Tom, and this has really been great to just catch up, you know, hear how your journey went from, from, you know, one public service to another public service and um, really doing things to help the the greater good. We could, we'll probably have to do a follow-up just to hear some of these, you know, additional stories, because I would love to hear, like, when you go into a situation, how do you dissect that and how do you get to that? And some, some experiences would be great. So I'd love to have you back.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I enjoy, I enjoyed this time talking to you. And uh, of course there's there's always a few secrets that I can't reveal. Sure. Uh, because uh I don't want to I don't want to give the arsonists ammunition on how to burn their fuck down. But Yeah. Um, there are some simple ways that you know I can explain, you know, what I do and how I do it and uh and uh and and, and get the word out to uh, your listeners on uh things that they can do uh to make them more fire safe. And that's the thing is is that you know we just we have too many fires today yeah we just need to we need to cut back and we need to we need to try and take some preventive measures in order to do it
0: yeah well we'd love to go through those things and i'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check into those those lithium fire detectors we have some but not everyone and we still have some that chirp every you know six or eight months so uh it's good to know that those those 10-year batteries are actually useful and, and can be replaced
1: oh yeah yeah they're uh, they're fantastic uh uh, KIDA uh, makes makes the 10-year lithium batteries and uh, you, sometimes some places you can buy them in a two-pack and they're, they're quick and easy. In fact, uh, our fire department uh, uh, has an agreement with KIDA and we had uh, delivery of over 10,000 smoke alarms and we go out to different neighborhoods and we install them free of charge to the homeowners uh, so that they at least have one working smoke alarm in their house. We usually yeah. put two or three but um, we uh, we find these developments in these areas where they don't have any, and it just means that much more. But uh, they're quick, they're easy, and they save lives.
0: Yeah, that's great. And you mentioned, um, you know, the fire department coming out. My mom lives in Asheville now, and and the Asheville Fire Department will come out twice a year and place her smoke detector batteries just so that, you know, I mean, she's, you know, she's. Almost 80 and she doesn't need to be on a ladder for placing those. And it's great that the fire department will do that free of charge and come out and just, you know, talk to the homeowner and, you know, just make sure that everything is good. Absolutely.
1: And, and, and that's, you know, that's what they're there for. You know, yeah. uh, it's not just when you have an emergency or, you know, you're not feeling well or whatever, uh, you call them up and, and they come out and they, they give you uh, you know, public service and, and, and public education and, and give you all kinds of help. So,
0: Yeah. That's fantastic. Well, Tom, I'll catch you long enough. Thank you so much. This has been great. Um, Really appreciate your time and walking through your journey.
1: Excellent. Excellent. I'm glad I could help. And thank you so much for for having me on. I appreciate that. And uh, I'll be more than happy to come back anytime.
0: We'll definitely have you back, Tom. This has been great. Thanks again.
1: Okay. Thanks, Paul.